This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to Executive Leaders Radio. In this hour, you'll hear directly from our region's finest business leaders. Through each of the interviews, these high-achieving leaders become relatable role models who share how they were able to build their enterprise, their personal secrets of success, about leadership styles and opportunities that lie ahead. Prepare to be inspired and entertained and to hear wisdom unheard elsewhere. Executive Leaders Radio. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio, broadcast from the offices of Cressa. This is your host, Les Smolin, Vistage International, with my co-host, Katie Brewer, the Brewer Group, Andrea Dykes, Howard Insurance, Haley Morris, Cressa, and Michael Musia. It's Musia, right? That's it. FBB Capital Partners. We've got a great lineup of guests for you on our show today. Uh, Katie, would you do the read-down? We have Tom Deerline, President and CEO of Thundercat Technology. We have Eileen O'Connor, CEO and founder of Hemington Wealth Management. Amy Katz, founder and CEO of Curbside Kitchen, and Suresh Gersani, Gersahani, president and CEO of Microautomation. Thanks. Let's talk to our first guest. Uh, we've got uh, Tom here. Hey, Tom, what's uh, Thundercat Technology? Thundercat Technology is a services-abled, veteran-owned small business that provides technology products and solutions in and around the data center, so data storage, cyber, networking and cloud and how big or small is this we're 90 people uh 90 people here in virginia uh most about 70 and then 20 throughout the united states and how'd you get a job there i'm actually one of the co-founders co-founders how many other partners do you have uh, right now i'm actually the only owner i bought out my uh, partners in 2015 but there were five of us originally hmm interesting and and uh where did you grow up i grew up in white plains new york white plains new york all right um I don't know anything about White Plains. How do you describe White Plains in a brief sentence? I mean, it's a suburb of New York City. It's 30 miles north. Okay. And uh, any brothers or sisters? I'm one of nine. I am eight out of nine. So five sisters, three brothers. That's a pretty large family. Very Irish Catholic. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? I mean, very traditional upbringing, very middle class. Uh, My parents, we were at church 10 a.m. every Sunday, all 11 lined up in a row. Is that how those families work when you have that many? It's just, you know, there's there's a lot of dynamics going on. If, you know, nine kids in 15 years, right, by the time I was in kindergarten, my sister was a freshman in college. Wow. Um, what was mom doing? My mom was a stay-at-home mother. So she kept you all in line? Our dad kept us in line. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, my mother, you know, she took care of us and everything from nurturing to helping with our homework and making sure that we were fed. But if, if there was trouble, it was wait till dad gets home. <laughs> what was dad doing? Dad worked in the trucking industry, originally in maintenance. And then for 30 years, he was a uh, worked in trade journalism. In tra- well, that was a big change. Well, he, he wrote about what he used to do. So he was a vice president of maintenance for these large fleet trucking companies. Uh-huh. And then eventually he wrote in these different trade journals about fleet maintenance. Interesting. Um, who's got the next question, Andrea? In the green room, you were sharing with us that you were the star basketball player on your team. Is that right? 
not exactly. What happened? Tell us. So my brother was the star of his team, but he's 10 years older than me. I actually, in fifth grade, tried out for the basketball team, and I got cut. And what happened when you got cut? You went home and told Dad? Yeah, um, Dad said, how did, how did it go, right? Because his last son was the MVP of the All-Star team. And, and I said, well, Dad, I got cut. He said, well, what happened? And he said, uh, well, the coach told me I was the last guy cut. And if there was an extra uniform, he thought he might have seen one in the basement. He'll let me on the team. And then what happened? So my dad said, well, you go find him tomorrow and ask him if he found the uniform. And he made me do that every day for more than a week. And on the fifth or sixth day, the coach just looked at me and said, practice is on Tuesday. How did you feel? It felt great because all my friends were on the team. I, I look back now and it was a formative moment for me that oh, my so. parents didn't call anybody. I had to go do it myself. So what do you mean? What, you had to do it yourself. What does that, what does that mean for you now? Uh, I think it's just having a goal, sticking with the goal, being persistent, and having some you know, resilience. Good. Who's got the next question there? And when you were uh, 13, yeah. I understand you went to West Point and saw a football game. Tell us about that. Uh, my older sister was ROTC, and she was a naval nurse. And, you know, my dad was a Marine, so we had some military in our family. And we just, just like anybody in that area, we went up for a fall football game. And I went up with my sister and, and my brother-in-law, and they took the three little kids. And was that your first experience with West Point? It was, and I, we saw the parade, and they were telling me stories about um, West Point, the honor code, and at the time, I thought, you know, the five years in the military was the bonus. I'm like, oh, and you get to go in the Army. I didn't think it was the payback, <laughs> but when I was a freshman in high school, I decided I want to go to West Point. What did the honor code mean to you? Uh, again, you know, I grew up with very traditional uh, Christian values and in and, and a Christian family, and uh having integrity um, was an important part of the way that my parents raised me. Tell us about the derivation of the name Thundercat Technology. So Thundercat Technology actually, um, when I was in Baghdad in 2006, uh, my company, a civil affairs company, we were all picking feline call sign names. So like Jaguar 6, Panther 6, and all the cool ones got taken. So I was like, oh, what am I going to be, Ocelot 6? Um, but my driver, who's 10 years younger than me, knew Thundercats, the cartoon. He says, well, why don't we be Thundercat?" I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And then he showed me the logo of the cart. I'm like, that's great. And we stenciled it on the Humvees, and we rolled out as Thundercat, uh, Thundercat 6. And it was actually, I'd never seen the cartoon. I only saw it for the first time about five years ago. Yeah. And that wasn't <laughs> but, your first tour, was it? Uh, I was actually, yeah, I was part of the Berlin Brigade. I graduated West Point in 89. And then I'm infantry, airborne, ranger, and then I got out in 93. I got called back into active duty in 2005, and that's when I went to combat in Baghdad. Go ahead, Mike. You were going to ask that follow-up? Uh, I was just going to say, what, what was that like? You know, you were, so you were out, and then you had a period of time where you were working and had a, a career outside of the military. What was that like, getting called back in at that point in your life? I mean, it was interesting. I think a lot of people would like to go back to a job and get a second chance to do it better if I only knew them what I know now. And I did know that. <laughs> but I went back in and with eyes open, knowing that I wasn't just training. I was heading to combat. Uh, and it allowed me to leverage my early training as a young adult, you know, West Point, Airborne Ranger, with some of the skills and, and leadership I developed in the civilian world. And did it impact you then founding Thundercat on the other side of your service the second time around? Yeah, th at the time that I got back, um, I went back to my old job because they, you know, by law had to hold it for the year and a half that I was away. 
But I was always someone that was looking for smaller and smaller. And I was presented by my four business partners with this business opportunity and I jumped at it. Whereas maybe five years earlier, I wouldn't have had the confidence to do that. Why smaller or smaller? Why was that important to you? Um, I definitely feel like I'm a people person. I enjoy being around others. And I always felt like I like where I know folks and I know their kids' names and I know their pets' name and I know their favorite team and what they did over the weekend. I didn't want to be a small cog in a big machine. Why did that, why was that important to you? Well, I mean, something about growing up that made that important to you or what? I mean, I, I think that, you know, my family's, my family's tight knit and we were talking about sports teams that different people are being on. I've always been on smaller teams. Uh, so maybe that's what, what uh, made that happen. Hmm. You referred to them as smaller elite teams earlier. That's yeah, I, I was civil affairs, um, which is technically special operations. But, you know, I'm not a badass. I just play one on TV. Like, it's just, it's it's associated with special operations command, and those are usually smaller elite teams. And, and is your role to be out front or to, what's the, what's the role of that as the civilian support part? Civil affairs, it's you take care of civilians on the battlefield, hence the name. So they're really what we'll call non-kinetic, right? So the people that are kicking down doors and chasing bad guys are kinetic. Non-kinetic is doing essential services, what people were classically calling reconstruction. I was an executive coach for the newly elected mayor of Sadr City. You're basically taking care of the non-combatants and keeping them safe on the battlefield. What prepared you for that? A lot of training, right? A lot of training. I went through a lot of military training learning about that, my experiences as a civilian. Um, so while it really was an interesting mix, right? Airborne Ranger, because you are in combat. My civilian experience, so I know what it's like to be out there trying to build a small business. Yeah. Uh, and then military training specific to that uh, okay. specialty. Haley, what do you got? So I'm gonna ask, where, where do you think you got that interest and passion for for the civilians what, from your mom or from your dad growing up I think you know obviously a little bit of both but you know my again my mom she just you know we talk about you know being lost in a big family we, we didn't feel none of us felt lost like my mom made sure each one of us was taken care of and felt special um, we as a family were always involved in helping others in the community like my mom did meals on wheels you know we were very heavily involved in the local church so I think that it, it wasn't unnatural for me to want to protect innocent people that were being impacted in a combat zone. And how hmm. does that translate to um, leading your company today? I think same thing. My job is to set the vision, get the right people, and then make sure they have the resources they need to be successful. I definitely view myself as a servant leader. Hi. I work for them. Tom, thanks. Appreciate that. Um, what's the website address for Thundercat? Thundercattech.com. Thanks. We've been talking with Tom Deerline, President and CEO of Thundercat Technology. Don't forget to visit our website, executiveleadersradio.com, to learn more about our executive leaders. We'll be back in a moment, right after this business spotlight. And your name is? Ramon Parker. And Ramon, the name of the organization? Loudon Free Clinic. And you were telling me there's some, something special about the Loudon Free Clinic, where every dollar that goes in does something else. What was that all about? Yeah, it does something magical. So for every dollar that's donated to our clinic, we can deliver $8 worth of care. And what kind of clinic is this? Who are, you, who are you helping out? What kind of stuff do you guys do? So we're helping out those who are 18 to 64 who are uninsured and low income, 200% or below the federal poverty level. And give me this thing about the math again. Give me how that works. So essentially, I have a, a staff of 12 individuals and 128 volunteers. So with that kind of payer mix, I'm able to deliver, you know, 
anywhere from eight dollars uh, in care for our patients. Because you've been able to enroll the support of so many volunteers, you're actually keeping the cost of health care down, and therefore multiplying the dollars and making one of it one of the best business investments for private corporations who want to invest. And didn't ah interesting. So private businesses and individuals can get involved. And didn't you Absolutely. tell me you had a couple of health care challenges yourself? What were they? I have. I've had four open heart surgeries, and mm-hmm. it helps me to understand what patients need. What are you talking about? What do you mean? So the idea of having been on the table or being a patient, I'm able to take a patient focus in how we deliver care differently than most people would. What did you you learn from those experiences personally? What do you appreciate that most of us don't? I appreciate consistency. Um, I think that a a staff at the hospital, nurses, providers, Mm -hmm. parents, Mm -hmm. family, all those people consistently being around me and consistently offering me hope. Uh, I'm so full of it that I have to offer that to the patients and to the staff when I'm working with them. What's the website address for the Loudon Free Clinic? Loudonfreeclinic.org. Let me have that one more time. L-O-U-D-O-U-N freeclinic.org. We've been speaking with your name again? Ramon Parker. And this has been your business spotlight. Thank you. And your name is? Chuck Ockeltree. And Chuck, what organization are you with? the National Conference Center, and West Belmont Place Event Center. Uh-huh. And what makes this organization special? The National Conference Center was built um, to be the nation's premier uh, meeting and event venue. Um, it's not a traditional hotel. Mm-hmm. So even though we have 900 guest rooms and all the services and amenities of a traditional hotel, mm-hmm. because of our size, mm-hmm. we're able to uh, deliver um, an environment that is very conducive to uh, learning, development. Mm-hmm. And who are your clients? Our clients are uh, many of the, the corporate 100, corporate 500, as well as uh, because of our location in Leesburg, Virginia, mm-hmm. we do a lot of business with Washington, D.C. Uh, government agencies. Mm-hmm. And what do you like about your job? What I like about uh, is we've had the opportunity to bring new leadership to the National Conference Center, blend with the tremendous service team that's built a reputation over the years uh, for great service. And uh, we've had a lot of fun um, helping our clients take advantage of the 65-acre campus. How about you personally? What, what do you enjoy about your job? I enjoy that, that we've uh, had a very, very, very successful turnaround in mm-hmm. uh, the two and a half years, mm-hmm. uh, taking the National Conference Center uh, from where it was in mm-hmm. 2014 with Excellent. the new, new ownership. We've literally doubled the revenue. And what's, so. your, what's your role in the organization again? Uh, my role is Chief Marketing Officer. And what's which that mean? It, good question. It means that uh, uh, we're involved with branding, mm-hmm. uh, everything to do with the sales, the marketing, the promotion, and uh, the business development. So you're actually going out there and you're actually involved with helping bring in the clients. Exactly, yes. And sir. I guess the way you're doing that is you're actually talking to a lot of the clients, making sure that you know your services are valuable. We talk to a lot of the clients and we do a lot of uh, events what's as well. What's the website address of the organization? www.conferencecenter.com. Let me have that one more time www.conferencecenter.com. This has been your business spotlight. We're back and you're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Les Smolin. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our next guest. We've got Eileen O'Connor, CEO and co-founder at Hemington Wealth Management. Welcome, Eileen. What's uh, Hemington Wealth Management? Hemington Wealth Management is a fee-only registered investment advisory firm. Um, We provide high net worth individuals and families um, with financial planning and portfolio management. And how big or small? Um, we're fairly large. We have 18 employees and two offices, one in Chicago and one here in D.C. And uh, how'd you get a job there? Um, I founded the firm um, six and a half years ago. Uh, what were you doing right before that? 
Uh, before then, I was also working uh, for a wealth management firm, um, and I decided to break out and start my own um, about six years ago. What made you think you could be successful doing that? Um, well, it took a lot of soul searching. Um, I wish I would have done it earlier, but I part of the reason for the move was I thought there was an opportunity in the marketplace to have a brand around serving um, executive women with the meeting them at their level, a high level financial planning. Hmm. Interesting. So you have this ability to kind of see opportunities where others may not. Um, I guess I'll give myself credit for that. Okay. It seemed very obvious to me at the time. Would it have been obvious to someone else? Um, apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Uh, what was that like growing up for you? Um, Fredericksburg was a great place to grow up. Um, but my experience in my childhood felt very rural. I went to a county um, high school, mm -hmm. which was so very rural. Okay. And how big or small is this family that you were part of? So I'm from a big family. One of... Uh, we were at 10 total. I was one of eight children. I was six out of eight kids. Wow. Six out of eight. Where are you in the pecking order? Is that towards the bottom of it? Yes, that's number six. I had four older brothers, an older sister, and two younger sisters. Uh, what role did you play in the family then? Um, well, I read a lot of birth order books. Apparently, if I'm after three brothers, I'm more like a firstborn. So I played a I'd like to say I played a bit of a leadership role and nurturing role for my younger siblings, certainly. Okay. And uh, was mom a stay-at-home mom? What did she do while you were all gone up? Mom was a very hardworking stay-at-home mom. You said hardworking stay-at-home. Was it a lot of work to take care of uh, eight kids? A lot of work. Um, I, I remember seeing her work so hard all day that I thought, I think I would rather have a job and hire someone to do that. Um, we'll come back to that thought. <laughs> Uh, what was dad doing? Um, he worked for the Department of Defense. How did you navigate not getting lost in the pack? I think um, there was a little bit of getting lost in the in the pack, um, being one of eight kids. But I think we all had a, being so close in age, we're all a year apart. Um, they developed some healthy competition among us. So it helped, um, it helped me learn to be independent and accountable for my own actions, but also to strive to be, to stand out a bit. But what are some examples um, throughout your childhood and early life? Um, my, my brothers were all highly successful, very um, academically uh, gifted, and so I competed with them on um, getting into business school. For example, I ended up going to Harvard Business School, um, which felt good from a competitive standpoint <laughs> for my, with my brothers. Interesting. Uh, that thing have anything to do with who you are today? Um, sure. Uh, I think it... I think from a young age, trying to be more of not making any waves and being under the radar to then maybe believing that maybe I do have um, the capabilities of being a leader. What was the pivot point there? I feel like I'm still pivoting, honestly, um, on that. I feel like I'm I'm constantly reminding myself of what, what I've done. Hmm. Okay, that's fair. It's honest. Uh, what have you got, Katie? How young were you when you started making money? Uh, my first job was um, I had a, my a paper route, and I that was when I was about ten years old. And what did you do differently than the other kids who had paper routes? Um, I'm not really sure what the the other kids did. I know that I would um, made bad business decisions by 
paying my siblings to do it on days I didn't want to. So it was more <laughs> of an investment than a money making. Why was it a bad in? Um, because I ended up having to pay um, to have this paper out most months. Um, what did that teach you about you? <laughs> um, it taught me that I should, that I need to learn more about cash flow. Um, but I think I was always interested in business. Um, I was always fascinated by it. And why did you do a paper route at that age? Um, really, it was the only option. You could do a 10. That didn't involve my, my parents or wrote, that I could do on 100% of my own. But why did you want to have a job at that age? Um, I, I wanted to have a job so that we could actually buy anything because we, we had a very modest um, lifestyle. And um, so anything extra would have had to be um, my own responsibility. Hmm. What, what do you take from that experience in early making money to your job now? Um, I think it was formative in the sense of um, making me a good saver and not wanting to be someone that doesn't you know, have enough resources to do the things they want to do in their life. So I think maybe it, um, maybe it was some way the reason why I'm in the business I am today, today because I, I like to help people um, make the most out of their hard-earned dollars. Yeah. What are you thinking, Mike? I just, I just want to go back to um, not making any waves in the family dynamic. And you mentioned kind of there's flying under the radar and then there's achieving, but still maybe still pivoting there. So talk, talk about that just a little bit. Like at what point through your education when you were younger, did you decide I'm gonna get good grades? I'm not gonna fly under the radar with poor grades. Well, flying under the radar um, for me was about doing everything right. Like getting high grade, grades and not causing any trouble mm -hmm. right so getting good grades was a way to um to not cause any extra room so i think they're more connected than maybe that two diverging paths would seem okay but you you started your firm you, you initially pitched the idea of your firm to your previous employer right which and how did that go and then how did your business spring from that um, it was an idea that I've, I'd been working on a lot within the firm, um, and I just came to the point where I realized I have to do it. I felt that I'd already proven the, the concept and that um, it was time to kind of put my money where my mouth was um, in terms of giving it a go. Where's the confidence come for that? You know, when I was debating what to do, when I realized, kind of saw the writing on the wall, I um, was laying on the beach um, with my brothers on a family vacation and saying, I don't know if I could do it. And one, one brother said, of course you're gonna do it and you should name it Hemington Wealth Management because that was the name of my parents' beach house. Ah. Um, which turns out to be a home run. So they were um, pretty supportive. Very, very, so they were sh couldn't believe that I would consider not doing it. Hmm. What are you thinking, Andrea? So your father taught you about the golden rule growing up, and, and I think it's got two meanings for us today. Tell us, tell us about the golden rule and, and, and how it played a part in your childhood and, and your role as a leader today. Um, so I talked with my clients a lot about their early money memories. Um, but for my dad, who was very strict, authoritarian, Catholic, traditional, um, he would often say that he who has the gold rules um, meaning that um, kind of who holds the purse strings can make the decisions. So he said that quite a few times growing up. 
And and what was the Andrea? You had a follow up to that. You want to ask that? Well, and and where and where does that fit into to the work today? Because my understanding of of the mission of your work is to really serve women, which is uh, obviously a, a unique niche and, and an important one. Um, I think it's directly related. So we're all about women empowerment, and the finances are a big part of that. Um, so I think we can make um, significant strides in empowering women if they make smarter decisions about the money. Why was that important to you? I think I've just seen over the years um, that, and maybe it it did have to do with part of my upbringing, but just saw just a a tremendous need in the marketplace. And women who are so busy raising families and doing all the right things and um, not making the most of what they had, just really bothered me. Hmm. I think we've uh, we've been talking with um, Eileen O'Connor, CEO and, f- and co-founder of Hemington Wealth Management. Sorry about that. What's the website address? Uh, HemingtonWM.com. Uh, thanks. Uh, we've uh, been listening again to uh, Eileen O'Connor at Hemington Wealth Management. Don't forget to visit our website, ExecutiveLeadersRadio.com, to learn more, more about our executive leaders. And we'll be back right after this break. And your name is? Jeff Lawson. And Jeff, what organization are you with? I'm with Lakota Hotels and Resorts. And wh- what do you guys do? What kind of stuff are you doing that's special? Well, we manage uh, conference centers and hotels, and we're currently managing the National Conference Center in Leesburg, Virginia. National Conference Center. How large or how small is this organization? Um, the conference center itself is 900 rooms in size, 350,000 square feet of meeting space, dining facilities for 850, uh, exercise facility all set on 61 acres of land. Wow, this is a large organization, isn't it? It is, very large. Uh-huh. And what's your role in the organization? I'm the general manager, and I have oversight of the uh, property and all the hospitality services that occur. Well, what's the general manager supposed to do with this large facility? Make sure, I have a, make sure eight executive community members and a, and a full uh, staff of 210 do their daily jobs. So how many folks do you have running through your halls on a weekly basis or daily basis or annual basis? What's that look like? Well, on a weekly basis on a full house, we'll have uh, 900 per night, um, seven nights, uh, 6,300, which translates to about 20,000 meals a week. Wow. And uh, your job, are you working nine to five or do you end up having to work evenings and early mornings and weekends and stuff like that? No, I'd say I'm always on duty. Uh-huh. Do you, wh- what do you enjoy about your job? Meeting people, working with some of the finest hospitality people in Virginia, which is my team, and meeting our clients because they're wonderful. So you're helping your clients plan their events? Well, we help plan. Uh, they are there for some form of education that goes on at one end of our business, and at the other end of our business, they're there for social catering events, uh, weddings, and such. So you're you're, well, you're running a 24 by 7 facility, aren't you? We are. Uh-huh. What's the website address of this organization? Conferencecenter.com. Let me have that again. Conferencecenter.com. And your name again is? Jeff Lawson. And the name of the organization? Lakota Hotels and Resorts. And this has been your business spotlight. And your name is? Ray Briscuso. And Ray, what organization are you with? Life Sciences Conference Group. And what is Life Sciences Conference Group? What do you folks do? We produce annual conferences and events for medical technology, life science, pharmaceutical companies. Uh huh. So if I go to an event, you're the folks that are working behind the scenes to make it happen? That's correct. We're the ones that make sure the food's on the table, the seats are there, soundstage and lights are there, your registration process works. And, and what kind of events are these? Are these just in the life science industry? Strictly in the life science industry. Why, why do you focus on the life science industry? 
Uh, we found that the best way to produce a high-quality event is to really know your customer. So we don't believe in numbers. It's names. We get to know each company. We find out what their actual mission and goals are, and we find the best way to deliver the value to them. And are you doing this nationally or regionally? We do it nationally. We continue to look for international opportunities, but it's primarily here in North America. And how old is this company? Uh, the company has just finished its 10th year. And how long have you been with the company? I founded the company 10 years ago. What gave you the idea to start this company? I used to work for a big corporation, and I produced the annual event for us. And when I decided to leave, they said, thank you for giving us $150 million worth of a business, and we'll see you later. And mm -hmm. next time I decided I would keep some ownership and do it myself. Ah, so you've been building you've been building this ever since. What, what do you like about your job? I like how different it is because we mix policy, we mix business. I might be putting one CEO together with a politician. I might be putting another CEO together with an investor. Mm -hmm. And I might be putting the next person together with their next employee. How interesting. Well, what's the website address for this organization? Medtechconference.org. Let me have that one more time. Medtechconference.org. And the name of the organization again is? Well, Life Sciences Conference Group. Life Sciences Conference Group. And your name is? Ray Briscuso. Ray Briscuso. We've been talking to Ray Briscuso, CEO and managing partner of Life Sciences Conference Group here on Executive Leaders Radio. This has been your business spotlight. We're back. And you're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our next guest. Amy Katz, founder and CEO of Curbside Kitchen. Welcome, Amy. What's Curbside Kitchen? So Curbside Kitchen has modernized the food truck industry, and we are an on-demand technology-based service that mainly for the real estate industry that handles all of the logistics for scheduling, vetting, and inspecting trucks and making sure that the buildings in the DMV, North Carolina, and Philadelphia have food amenities using hmm. the food trucks. Uh, so real simple. What do you really do? <laughs> no, seriously. So it's, it's kind of like an Uber for food trucks. Okay, that's pretty good. a lot of heart good. and a lot of passion. And, and how big or small is this? Ten people. And uh, how'd you get a job there? I founded the company. What do you mean you founded the company? Well, I recognized that there had to be a better and a newer way, a new model of success for the food truck business. And aggregating all the trucks onto one platform just seemed to be brilliant because of the buildings being less amenitized in real estate and the need for food service. And um, Do you see things? Or have you always had this gift to kind of see things that my, maybe others didn't? I think so. I think I try to take an innovative uh, approach to most um, things that I do in my life. Okay. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey, Cherry Where? Hill. Cherry Hill. And uh, what were mom and dad doing? So mom... Uh, Parents divorced, mom was a property manager, and dad was in the title insurance company. And any other brothers and sisters? I have a half-sister and an older sister. Uh, so you're in the middle there, sort of? Yes. Is that how you describe it? Sort of. I mean, I didn't live with my sisters, one of my sisters, so I was, you know, the younger of the, you know, the younger sister. So who'd you live with? My mom. Okay. Um, and and uh, were you close to dad as well? We were scared of dad. What do you, what do you mean, <laughs> scared of dad? Dad um, put the fear of God in us, so we did not live with dad, but we, we, he was present, and he was around. He's the one that set the rules in the, in the house. Okay. Haley, what do you got there? Um, you mentioned in the green room that your, your mom was a wonderful mom, worked very hard, but had limited resources, and there was kind of, it was always kind of tight on money. How, how did that fear of not having enough money translate to your whole life? and your career today? 
I always wanted to work. I always wanted to have money. I just, um, I'm just excited about the opportunity of, of um, having money in my pocket from a very young age. So that's translated into just about everything that I've um, done throughout my career. Were you aware that, that there was a struggle going on yes, there financially? Yes, very much so. I can remember my mom being very stressed out and having many jobs to make ends meet, and that worried me. It worried you. Did you ever voice that? I, I don't think I voiced it to her because she tried to hide that, and she didn't want us to be worried by that. However, I, I, it's hard not to be aware of that in, yeah. in your home and not you know, being able to have the same things that everybody else has. How young were you when you started earning your own money? I would say I was around uh, maybe 10 or 11, and I would work in my grandparents' hardware store just as a cashier. And just anything to make some extra cash and looking just for odd jobs, watching dogs, just asking, <laughs> you know, asking for anything to just make a little extra allowance. In your grandparents' hardware store, did they ask you to work there? No. Whose I, idea was it? Mine. Why did you have that as an idea? I think I also, work? short of the money being important to me, I, I love being around people. Um, I love the interaction. I love talking to the customers. I just thought it was fun. And I always love sales too, and that was part of it, just showing people where things were on the shelves and exploring the hardware store was fun for me. And how did that experience translate into what you do today? Well, I think that, you know, when I look back at um, the various careers that I have had, there has always just been a sales component, a marketing component, getting to know people, helping people. And um, that, to me, has, has very much translated into curbside kitchen today. What do you mean? Well, I just think that, you know, for my business, there is so much marketing and so much, um, th you have to take a very innovative approach to clients and coming up with food-based solutions where they don't have them. And so we're always presented with trying to come up with unique culinary experiences for our clients. So take us back to 8 to 14. When you weren't working, what were you doing for fun? I loved arts and crafts. I loved painting. Anything creative I always loved doing, making things out of nothing. Why? Um, I, I just like to see the end result. I would like to use my mind in, in a creative way and coming up with projects and things that I was just proud of. And what's that got to do with Curbside Kitchen? I think I use those resources today in, in everything that we do and when we are presented with clients that um, have, they're either looking for food halls or they're looking for pop-up vendors or they're looking for something that just did not exist previously, we're creating something from scratch and that's what I really love, just building something that was not there previously. And I think that that's just part of where I come from. It's just in my blood. Mm, give an example of that when you were 8 to 14. Uh, I think that, you know, for me, I, there was a craft store around the corner, and I used to go there with my allowance, and I would buy little items and paint them and sell them or, or you know, yeah. That sounds kind of resourceful. It is resourceful. But it also creative? Explain that. Well, because most kids aren't really, I don't, they don't really find that probably very interesting to go walk around a craft store and, and try to sell items that they paint. <laughs> it took a risk. A little bit of a risk, yeah. Yeah. What are you thinking, Mike? 
So you were saying in the green room that uh, your dad instilled uh, was tough and strict and your mom instilled work ethic and you kind of described everything you did from a childhood standpoint as kind of you know, being a grinder. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, I just think that growing up, you, you really just, the expectations were high. It's, you know, nose to the grind. It's not giving you anything, having to earn it. Um, you know, my dad in college, when most kids were probably getting allowance, my dad was sending me quotes from Entrepreneurial Magazine, Earn Not Given, and, and you know, various quotes that I still use today. And, and I think that just growing up, instilling those type of values has really benefited me in the long run. We're talking about the business and the marketing, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, some, a lot of people make arts and crafts when they're 8 to 14. I can't think of many stands in my neighborhood where kids are trying to sell them. <laughs> so how, how much of the time you're spending with the business is, is marketing and how far back does that go? I would say half of our job is, is marketing. The, you know, the biggest challenge is notifying tenants that food trucks are outside and how do we get people to go outside to enjoy the food trucks and coming up with technology-based solutions such as mobile pay and um, text messaging people about the really interesting items that are going to be downstairs has been exciting and, and using that creative approach has, has been just trying to figure out different ways to do things that haven't been done before and and that to me is what um, really excites me about I, the I want to ask you about the the comment you made a moment ago about being a leader think about an example and tell us early on in, in your life the when when you first recognized uh, I'm a leader give us an example of that in your childhood sure I think do you want an example from childhood or from G just the earliest now? example you can just, think of um, you I said you love to lead sure I just think my first job when I landed in New York City was at um, a magazine called paper magazine it was a style publication and I was given absolutely no resources whatsoever. They told me to go out and sell, at the time, the, the tobacco category, selling cigarettes in a magazine, advertising. And I wasn't given one resource. It was an empty book. We didn't even have cell phones at the time. And going out there on the streets and pounding the streets and understanding how to do it and leading this charge and initiative when there was no advertising, not even one page in the magazine, and knowing, I can do this. I, I have the determination to figure this out, and I'm going to get advertisers into this magazine. And I think that's been just sort of a theme throughout all of the careers that I've had, given, you know, building something from absolutely nothing and figuring out how to do it. Quick, quick. Go ahead, quick. So and we, we didn't really touch on this much. You you considered yourself a younger younger child. So what kind of role did your older sister play, and how, how did you get all this leadership and confidence as being the youngest one in the house? I, I don't think my sister was really much of a leader. She was scared a lot of the time. She just looked to me for the answers and the advice. I think I really was more like the older so sister. Yeah, for sure. Great. Amy, uh, we've been speaking with Amy Katz, founder and CEO of Curbside Kitchen. Amy, what's the website address? Curbsidekitchen.com. Thanks. Um, we've been speaking again with Amy Katz, founder and CEO of Curbside Kitchen. Uh, don't forget to visit our website, executiveleadersradio.com, uh, to learn more about our executive leaders. And we'll be back in a moment right after this business spotlight. I'm Tina Leone. I'm the CEO of the Boston Business Improvement District. And what is the Boston Business Improvement District? We work to attract, support, and connect the most compelling, creative, and ambitious minds in our region. Boston is known as an epicenter for research and discovery. Uh, some of the greatest things that are invented, such as the MRI, the barcode, the internet, 
the first satellite, all were either conceived, funded, or developed by organizations here in Boston. How, how old is this organization? We're just, just shy of six years old. How long have you been there? How long have you been uh, there? Almost six years as well. Did you found this organization? Yes, I, I am the founding CEO. Why did you do that? Well, the, the, the organization actually came about uh, by the commercial property owners in why, Boston. Why, why, why does it turn you on? Why does your gig turn you on? <laughs> people. I mean, we the, the, the ability to connect people and then who knows the next great idea is going to result from that. We have incredible minds in the Washington, D.C. area, and Boston is, as I said, the epicenter for the smartest people in this area. So your job, you're like the master connector. I feel like the mayor of, of Boston, the mayor of innovation, because that's uh -huh. what's happening. So your, idea, your, your thought is that in order to create more stuff, in order to launch more businesses, in order to cause more good, it's a matter of connecting exactly. the right people. Exactly. And you like being in the middle of all that I, stuff. Oh, we love it. We love it. And simple things, just connecting people through events, through art, uh, through a happy hour. Mm -hmm. You don't know what's going to come out of that. Mm -hmm. That's what's exciting. So it's all about the people. And you're the uh, you're the founder of this organization. Is this a nine to five kind of job oh, for you? Oh hell no! It's a lot longer uh -huh. than that, baby. So do you have to you have to work the weekends and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, sure, sure. Let me have the website address of this sure, organization. Bostonbid.com, and, and you can download Boston Connect mobile app. Let me have uh, let me have that website address one more Bostonbid. time. Bostonbid.com. It's B-A, give me the spelling on that. B-A-L-L-S-T-O-N-B-I-D.com. Excellent. And your name again is? Tina Leone. And the name of the organization? Is the Balsam Business Improvement District. And this has been your business spotlight back in a moment. Want help building your business with help from the show's CEOs? Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money. All the big issues because our CEOs have been there and done that. Succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. And some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on the show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues because our CEOs have been there and done that. Succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. Some of the CEOs who have appeared on our shows over the last 10 years may be willing to help you grow, assuming you've ser you're serious about your success, serious about your own success, because it all starts with the leader. If you're serious about creating your own successful business or truly committed to putting your nose to the grindstone and doing whatever it takes to make your business successful, we may be able to match you with successful CEOs who have created millions of jobs and earned millions of dollars to help you create your success. We've established unique relationships with a unique universe of over 7,000 CEOs who have created substantial wealth for their companies, their teams, and themselves. These women and men get the build in their blood and often continue to start and build businesses even after they've created substantial wealth for themselves because they love the challenge of building a business. Perhaps we can present you and your business to some of these CEOs to gain their interest in helping you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com to hopefully match you with some of the CEOs we've had on the show for the last 10 years. Mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. We're back and you're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our next guest, Suresh Gersahani, who is the president and CEO of Microautomation. Welcome, Suresh. What's uh, Microautomation? Uh, Microautomation is a, a a call center company that focuses on specifically automating call centers, so we don't manage or staff call centers. Interesting. We just help introduce technology into call centers. So it's different than other companies, right? 
Yes, yes. And okay. in fact, we, we range from all the way from a traditional call center like a Hilton or Sirius XM to uh, 911 centers. We help uh, introduce next generation 911. And, and how big or small is this? We are 35 people focused in uh, Centerville, Virginia. Uh-huh. And uh, how'd you get a job there? Well, actually, I started it uh, 30 years ago when I left. 30 years ago? 30 years ago. What was going on for you 30 years ago that all of a sudden you decided, I'm doing this? Well, I was working for IBM, and I decided that after I developed two or three products for them that I should try to go out and actually try to sell it on my own. Huh. Uh, where are you from? Well, I grew up in the United States. I was born in Kentucky and lived in Columbus, Ohio, and New Jersey, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Did I read about you in some paper in Kentucky? Yes. <laughs> Well, way back when, when I was born, I was actually the first Indian born in Louisville, Kentucky, so I got written up in the paper in a nice little picture. How old? I was only one. Wow. Uh, but Columbus or Pittsburgh is really where home was? Uh, it, was it was a combination of both. My formative early years were Columbus, and then uh, Pittsburgh was kind of my high school years, so those are the years you tend to remember. Okay. And any brothers and sisters? I have, I'm the eldest. I have one younger brother and one younger sister. Is there any re anything that comes with being the oldest in a family of three? Uh, yeah, you end up breaking down all the barriers, you know, all the, all the things that, uh, that you want to do on your own that your parents wouldn't let you do. Uh, that's where the eldest has got to kind of... I thought you have most of the arrows in easy. your back. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, the, and of course my brother and sister got, had it easy because okay. they didn't have to fight for anything. And what were mom and dad doing? Uh, my dad was uh, an engineer working through, he worked for GE, Westinghouse, and eventually became vice president of marketing for Frigidaire. Hmm. And what about mom? Mom was kind of a stay-at-home mom. Um, however, she was pretty busy. We, we had a lot of uh, family that was brought over from India, so she, she kind of had to take care of the family. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, Mike, you probably have the next question there. Yeah, so uh, expand on the family a little bit. You you had pretty influential grandparents involved in your life early on. Uh, yeah, actually, both my maternal and paternal uh, grandparents were very influential on, on for me. Uh, my maternal uh, grand my grandfather in India was uh, actually had started a company called Push Radio, and when I was young, we actually had to spend our summers in India. My mom would take us to India, and I had to. I had to basically find something to do for three months in a, when, during monsoon season. So I used to follow him around, and I used to go to, into the radio station there, and uh, the radio manufacturing thing, and he hooked me up with an engineer, and I got to build radios. I used to build, actually make radios. How old? I was about 10 years old. Hmm. Ended up building an AM radio so I could listen to American music. Uh, I used to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, turn on my AM radio that I'd built, and listen to some American music from WABC in New York City. Interesting. What else, Mike? What about the, your paternal grandfather? Uh, my paternal grandfather uh, started off as a uh, mail delivery person in India and grew to become Postmaster General of, of India. It was, a, it was a pretty big deal. So he kind of taught me a lot about hard work, about starting from the beginning and just kind of growing. No intimidation there? I mean, these are fairly accomplished people then. Uh, you know, no intimidation. Just uh, well, I, I I have a very intimidating family. My brother is uh, you know CE, ex CEO of ADT. He's now just been appointed CEO of Service Master. So I have uh, I have some accomplished people in my family. What impact does that have on you? Uh, it makes me try harder. Uh, I'm the only one that's actually started my own business, and my, the rest of my family is mostly corporate America. So they had it easier. Yes. <laughs> 
Anything else, Mike? They're used to limos. <laughs> there were a couple characteristics that you mentioned um, your uh, paternal grandfather in terms of education, hard work, and just talk a little bit about how that's influenced you. Yeah, my paternal grandfather was very focused on, on education. In fact, uh, he insisted that everybody go to college. In fact, he insisted everybody got, got a master's degree. So virtually everybody in my extended family has got a master's degree. Hmm. Haley, what are you thinking? Well, going back to um, moving around from Ohio to Pittsburgh, what was and New Jersey in between for a year at a young age, what was transitioning like, and how did you adapt? Because that's well, hard for a kid. It is hard. It is hard because you have to kind of uh, make new friends, and, right. and, it, and it is challenging. And I, I, I think I became a little bit of a loner. I, I remember being in high school. I kind of felt like I was one of those kids in the Big Bang Theory. You know, I was, the, I was the nerd. I was the one walking around, you know, with my books, carrying my books all through school and such. I. Uh, so that's kind of where I identified with. And uh, that skill to adapt and and be able to transition to those schools, how do you carry that um, or translate that into your work today? Um, I, I think I, I've become more of a, over the years, I was a, a solution provider. I used to make solutions. I just, I'd come up with solutions to everything. I'd fix things. That was really my thing. And I, I, I still do that today. I find that I, I enjoy helping my customers solve problems. That's really what I did. Hmm. As you think about your parents and as you were growing up, um, you talked a little bit about your mom being a stay-at-home mom. What kind of influence did she have on you growing up that you bring to work every day? Well, you know, it was interesting. She was very focused on exercise. Uh, yoga was her big thing. Um, to the point where she would just to carry a yoga mat and even one of those those portable DVD players to every place. My used to irritate my dad to no end because they'd go to a casino and she'd be walking through the lobby with a, a yoga mat and a DVD player because she had to do her yoga every morning. And as a result, I end up uh, going to the gym every morning. I, it's it's, it's a, a habit of mine. I need to go work out every morning. Is that something you bring to the other employees in your company? Yeah, I set up a corporate membership with the uh, with the local uh, uh, gym and try to encourage everybody to go to the gym too. So, so and they see me there every morning. My car's parked there. I go to the gym. I mean, it's it's important. It's an it important is. part of your life. You learn to kind of take care of yourself because you need to take care of yourself in order to care, take care of your company and take care of your your people. Where'd you learn that? That kind of came from my mother. What do you mean? Well, she she'd always kind of took care of herself, and she and then she would also use that energy to take care of not only my grandparents who lived with us, but then every one of my brothers, uh, my dad's brothers and sisters. Were, my dad brought them over one by one, and they lived with us for six months out of the year. So, Why did he bring them over? Um, it it was uh, really kind of a promise to my grandfather to give them a better opportunity. So he would bring them over, help them get a job where they lived with us for six months. Uh, in fact, I'm closer to my cousins than I am to my own brother and sister because they, they became my brothers and sisters when I was growing up. It so was a promise to your grandfather? Your father promised it to his father? Yes. What did he promise? He promised that he would help the his brothers and sisters, you know, get jobs and stuff. And, and the best way to do it, he thought, was to bring them over to the United States. Is, is that... Um is that part of the obligation of what it means to grow up culturally in India, or is that something else? I think it's that family bond. I mean, uh, Indians tend to have a very f uh, strong family bond, and when they make up, up and there's a, that respect for your elders. So, uh, you know, your parents are, are the ones that you're supposed to 
take care of. In fact, I my my dad lives with me today. I take care of him. He lives in my house with me. So you you've carried that on. Yes. Tell us about your your first experience earning money. How young were you? Uh, uh, like a lot of people, I, I was when I was 12 years old. I started I I started delivering newspapers. And why'd you pick newspapers? Well, really, that was the only thing you, you really could do because I had no transportation. So the, the guy dropped the, the newspapers off, and I would walk around the neighborhood in Pittsburgh, which was all hills, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, and deliver newspapers. And after a year, I earned enough money to buy myself a bicycle so I could bike around and deliver newspapers. So, What did you learn from that experience that you carry forward in your, in your role today? Um, I think perseverance. You you. You kind of see a goal where you want to go, and and you kind of work toward that goal. So my first, and it was little goals, you know, smaller goals. Like goal number one was just to uh, to get enough money to get a bicycle, and then goal number two was okay. Now that I have a, b- a bicycle, to get all the extra things that I need on a bicycle, like a light, for example. I didn't have a light at night when I was going the bicycle to deliver papers, so I then wanted to buy a light, and so it was just kind of going with smaller goals to get that end goal of earning money so that you can buy things that you want. You're 10 years old, you're 11 years old, you're doing that? Yeah, you kind of, I guess you learn that, that if you want to go for a big goal, you got to break it up into smaller goals. Who's, who told you that? That has to be something from that I picked up from the family. Somewhere along the way, my either my grandfather, or one of my grandfathers, or even my, my parents. Hmm. I, I have to think about that. All right, right now, why don't you tell us the website, Jess? It's uh, microautomation.com. All right. We've been speaking with uh, Suresh Gursahaney, President and CEO of Microautomation. Katie, why don't you run through our guests? We had Tom Deerline, President and CEO of Thundercat Technology, Eileen O'Connor, CEO and founder of Hemington Wealth Management, Amy Katz, founder and CEO of Curbside Kitchen, and Suresh, Suresh Gursahani, apologize, uh, President and CEO of Microautomation. Uh, this is Les Smolin, Vestige, and I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Andrea Dykes, Howard Insurance, Haley Mars at Cressa, Mike Musio at FBB Capital Partners, and Katie Brewer, the Brewer Group, uh, helping to develop our storyline and hopefully delivering to our listening audience an entertaining and educational show. I'd also like to thank our listening audience for listening. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a radio show. Thank you for tuning so in. You've been to listening website, to Executive, executive Leaders Radio, the region's premier radio leaders. show highlighting local Bye. executive leaders. We hope you've enjoyed the show here on 1500 AM. You can learn more about Executive Leaders Radio by visiting executiveleadersradio.com or tune in next time right here on 1500 AM. That's executiveleadersradio.com.